Kaylee, did you know that two-thirds of the Sunshine Cyber Conference's keynote speakers are no password require alums? I did. But did you know that one of them is none other than my mentor and friend, Wynn Schwartow? I think I might have seen that on, on, on a couple of chats or uh, emails uh, going around, Kaylee. What, what, what have you been up to with Wynn? Have you guys been, what's going on with the most recent collab? Oh, of course. He is always into something and he is always also roping me into that something. Uh, so right now he is in the process of putting out a book on meta war, which is about how you can survive the information warfare that's just going to go right on over to the metaverse. That'd be great. I'm looking forward to reading that when it gets ready. Is there like a, like a rough date on it or is it maybe year end? Uh, it's it, the goalposts have moved a couple times, but definitely, I, I, he's hoping to have it out at the beginning of next year, so in a couple months. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so, but this is where if folks want to see you guys live, they can come to the Tampa Convention Center in Florida, the twenty seventh and the twenty eighth of March, and that's right around the corner for us. Yeah, that's right. Not only is Wynn one of the keynote speakers, but he and I are also going to do a joint session titled Fishing for Potential, the RTFM Guide to D Diverse Cybersecurity Talent. Should I know what RTFM, that acronym stands for? Or is it going to be I think revealed? you should RTFM to find out what oh, RTFM no. means. All right. Read the manual. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have... Um, the, the big news for the podcast, though, is that we're going to be doing our first on-site remote recording. We're going to have keynote speaker um, Tamiko Fletcher with us. She's the CISO at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. That is going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to not only meeting her, but also doing the podcast live and getting to interview her while we're there. I think our sibling podcast... Uh, uh, do we belong here has already done the done a live recording. Uh, and so I really thought that was cool and very spontaneous. And, you know, we record this live obviously, but you know, um, many of the curse words that we use get edited out or bleeped or reordered. <laughs> so it'll be, we'll be interesting to see what kind of restraint we can put ourselves under. Yeah. Uh, it'll this, be cool to one. see how the audience responds to. That's right. I got to be pretty good. We'll have to, um, I can tell you one thing, the lighting will likely be better. Than the conditions <laughs> in. I'm recording this currently with the worst possible lighting. It's like absolute sunshine coming in from right behind my head, and I initially right know that. exactly. Um, You've never looked well, better. <laughs> it's true. It's right. I've got a face for backlighting. Um, <laughs> so the uh, Bianca Lewis is also going to deliver a keynote on election security, and she is just awesome. I'm really yeah. looking forward to that. And then who else do we have joining us from uh, from the cast? We also will have Gotham Sharma and Alan Liska. Wow, we'll be. Alan's there. going to do a live. Speaking of live podcasting, this is even this is much better than live podcasting. This is a live table reading of one of his Johnny Dollar comic books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. I'm I'm kind <laughs> of nervous because we're doing something live as well. Yeah, but. <laughs> people, people are going to be it. rooting for us i think that's how these conferences yeah. go it's not it's, these aren't these aren't i'm hoping this is what i'm going to keep telling myself is that everyone that's wants right. us to succeed this isn't like a last comic standing thing where we're only one person can win we can all we can all win kaylee we can yeah. all win 
It's um, not DEFCON. No. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, there's personalities for that. I think this is way more collaborative. Uh, folks who want to register can go on to the cyberflorida.org website, uh, Sunshine Cyber. Pretty easy to get in. Um, worth checking out. It's a two-day event. Um, come for when you can. We'll, uh, Kayla and I will be there for all of it, as will uh, Rex, our producer, and uh, the rest of the Cyber Florida team. We're really, really looking forward. It's going to be a great conference. So um, for today's episode, I am your host. I'm Jack Clabby. I'm a cybersecurity attorney at Carlton Fields, PA. With me is Kaylee Melton. Kaylee's the vice president of U.S. remote publishing teams at Know Before. After a short break, we're going to chat with Lisa Plagemeyer. She's the executive director at the National Cybersecurity Alliance. Lisa is a people-first leader who loves collaboration. And sometimes she helps produce reports that are chock full of BS, but not the kind of BS we sling here on the cast. The BS she uses is behavioral science for those unfamiliar with her work. But she's got a lot of cool things to talk to us about, and we'll be right back. Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that introduces you to some of the top talent in the world of cybersecurity. All right, welcome back, folks. Our guest today is Lisa Plagemeyer. Uh, Lisa, welcome to No Password Required. Thank you. Great to be here. All right, can you start by just giving us a little bit of background on your career and how it led to your current role at the National Cybersecurity Alliance? Yeah, I was a marketing person, minding my own business in the marketing department and um, got bit by the security bug. So I (laughs) was at a technology company, a $2 billion technology company that was in the automotive space. And when the GPAC happened, that spurred a whole bunch of um, activity and conversation in that industry. As you can imagine, luckily, the connected car hasn't turned out to be as bad as a lot of security professionals were predicting at the time. But um, the chief security officer came to the head of marketing and said, hey, we want to do thought leadership about our security program because we belong to a financial services company. We had a better, more mature security program than our competitors. And so I was, this still makes me laugh, I was, quote unquote, the most technical person on the marketing team, (laughs) which isn't saying much (laughs) or it's saying an awful lot. Um, And so she's like, oh, you do it. So I got to work with the the CISO on all kinds of thought leadership. We got a speaking spot at uh, the JD Power conference, automotive conference. We we got you know press pickups and automotive publications uh, aimed at the industry, not like car and driver, but um, that would have been fun. Um, and then we got spun off from that corporate parent, and so that's when he asked me to join the security team full time. And I was like, what are you going to do with me? I'm a marketing person. Like he said, well, we've got to keep doing all that stuff we're doing. And we need um, board, you know, I need help with board presentations now because it's going to have board visibility and um, incident comms. And I'm like, incident, what's an incident? Like, that sounds scary. (laughs) Um, And training and awareness. I'm like, what's training and awareness? Oh, that's that stuff that corporate makes us do once a year. Um, I said, I don't want to do that. People hate that stuff. Like, that's <laughs> terrible. I don't want my name attached to that. Nobody likes that. So he gave me a, a budget that was big enough for us to do something interesting with, and we had a lot of fun um, with that. And then at some point, we joined the National Cybersecurity Alliance as a board member. Um, and then I was a board member at the next two companies I went to uh, in the training and awareness industry. And uh, we got acquired by Before. 
And I said to the executive director of the NCA, hey, I want to volunteer my time because we were in the middle of rebranding, creating a new logo, all that stuff. And I was chair of the Marcom committee on, on the board. And I think in retrospect, he was probably already interviewing for his next job because he's like, how much just come on as a consultant to us? And, um, and so one thing led to another and here I am. So I think of us as the training and awareness manager for the country um, or the marketing department that CISA wishes it had. So it, that's how it, it, it uh, works with us. We have a cooperative agreement with CISA every year to execute on cybersecurity awareness month. Um, so yeah, that's how it all unfolded. And I'm having a blast. We're growing like crazy and um, it's all good stuff happening. Lisa, it's, it's funny cause it's, I do a lot of speaking, as you might imagine, on on these issues too, and I feel sometimes like I'm a junior marketing a member, a junior member of the marketing <laughs> team for CISA too, because I put it on. I have like the slide for free resources, and I always put it up there. And mm-hmm. folks, it's amazing how folks don't know about it, um, and all I can offer and all I can do. So what, what yeah. you're doing is is, is incredible, right? Um, I'm trying to fix that. I'm, I mean, where that's that's where the growth comes in because um, there are too many people who don't know what we who we are and what we have to offer. And there's, you know, and there's a lot of um, leaders in the cybersecurity industry who do talk about the talent gap and they're um, reluctant sometimes, you know, to take folks who don't have super technical backgrounds yeah. and move them into roles that are of, that are of responsibility and management leadership roles. And your story is a, is a great one for that because, you know, taking a marketing you know executive who has a certain skill set and then naturally over the over the course of months and then years you take on this other role so it can be done it's really about like what perspective do you bring to the job so my CISO used to say to me i need somebody who's got a marketer's perspective and i can teach them enough about cybersecurity to do the job so it's really about you know do you need somebody to build relationships with the business in your on your security team well, maybe you'd get somebody from sales or somebody from partnerships or business development or somebody who's really good at building relationships and you teach them enough about security to be like a business security officer, for example. It's it's really about what is – because it, you can't go the other way around. You know, it's it's really hard to take a security person and turn them into a marketer, give them a marketer's <laughs> mindset, right? Yeah, it's – it's funny, but it's not funny because <laughs> right. that's a lot of the battle that we have to fight in security is not having great relationships and not being great communicators and all that. So, yeah, it's 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 to me, it's like what foundational skills are most important to the role. And then you can teach the rest. We're, we understand that early in your sort of transition to the security side of things, the company you were at was hit with a DDoS attack. Yeah, well, um, actually, the day we got spun from that corporate parent, we had four incidents. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's that's proof that the bad guys read the headlines, right? Big, <laughs> big publicly traded company is spinning off a division, and they're watching. So they know you you got to stand up your own security team, and that was day one of our security organization. And that didn't scare you off? You were, you were, still, you were still in it? Yeah, actually, like, realizing, you know – learning really quickly what incident comms was going to mean because there were four incidents in one day it was a really long day but the adhd brain in me loved it like just going from one fire to the next all day and unfortunately there were you know that wasn't the only day that transpired that way and then other there was one day where we had five incidents in a day and that was pretty tough to deal with we had one over thanksgiving weekend like that's always fun when that happens you're on a bridge you know 
in the other room while your family's having Thanksgiving dinner oh in the gosh. dining room. Um, no, I actually actually thought incident response was really exciting. Like, and I think in our we have a program to attract more HBCU students to careers in cybersecurity. And a lot of the students really don't know exactly what it is they want to do. And so sometimes we talk about like what kind of personality types or even um, neurodivergent folks are best suited for a particular job. And honestly, I think if, if I mean, in my experience uh, and my old boss's experience, he was, we both had, you know, squirrel brains, like incident response is, is right up your alley because you just, it's moving really quickly and you're jumping from one intense thing to the next. Yeah, I love that you're advocating for other neurodivergent people. Um, I'm neurodivergent myself, and I've definitely seen how harnessing the powers of that can be great in in my own teams as well. Yep, yep. I think I think um, you know one thing about our education system is it does try to um, slot people into into you know or bucket people into different buckets and. Um, we try to fix what's quote unquote wrong, but maybe it's not wrong. Maybe it's an asset in some way. It's just different. Yeah. Lisa, you, you know, had a team to lead during COVID. What was that like? And, um, you know, what were some of the lessons that you learned? Yeah, we were actually based in Seattle. I was commuting between Austin and Seattle, getting ready to, um, move up there when COVID happened and I, I never actually moved and I'm still in Austin, Texas. So I kind of, as a person who really craves sunshine, I kind of dodged a bullet there, but, um, <laughs> you know, we were, we had people that lived in the Capitol Hill neighborhood, right. And you had all that stuff going on in Capitol Hill. Um, the hotel that I was staying at right when the lockdown started was five miles from the nursing home in, uh, Kirkland, but it was kind of ground zero, um, if people remember, things kind of started in Seattle and moved across the country, started on the West Coast. So um, so we were all pretty stressed out, and everybody was stressed out <laughs> we're all around the whole world. But um, we kind of saw it firsthand hitting closer to home in the Seattle area um, in the early days. Um, I think it was just really leaning into – optimism as much as we possibly could we started creating a series of content which is now a no before us library that we called um actually a customer named it for us we were we were uh we decided to create a training series that didn't have any hackers and hoodies didn't use any threatening or militaristic language didn't stress people out because frankly everybody was stressed out enough and I had attended um, a remote session of a UX UI design um, meetup group in Austin. And they, the topic was how to design during COVID. Okay. And I realized that, you know, there's a transaction happening when you're interacting with software, wh- whether it's training, um, a training module or anything else. And that we needed to lower the cost of, of doing, of gaining your attention on that training module. We needed to make it easier for you to engage and fear at a time when you're stressed is clearly not the right way to go. So, um, so we developed this new training series and we were previewing it to a customer and he said, boy, Lisa, you're really changing the training paradigm. So paradigm became the (laughs) name of the series. Um, and people got really excited about it because we changed the whole look and feel compared to the stuff we were known for producing. And, um, so it was great. I think we, um, you know, a lot of us had challenging business headwinds during COVID, but it was a good time to put your head down and build. 
So I think we produced like four new training series in nine months or something like that. We, we just got really busy and it, frankly, um, having a work project that you're really excited about can completely take your mind off of other negative stuff happening in your life. So it was good to, you just rally people around that and everything. The, um, just on your comment about stripping out some of the militaristic language that is so prevalent or was so prevalent, just, you know, want to thank you for your work there sort of nationally on that issue because it is it is so frustrating when i see a piece of marketing or even training material that's you know we're in a fight or we're in a war mm-hmm. against the hackers and look there may be a time and a place for that but when people hear that kind of you know it just kind of washes over folks i think it yep. doesn't doesn't engage and you know we're not warriors we're sitting in a keyboard right there are right. warriors and it almost diminishes their thing it's like this can be something that we all live with on a day-to-day basis. It can even be fun to think about. Um, yeah, I think you got to have your inside voice and your outside voice. There's, or one of my CISOs used to say, keep it in the family, right? If we want to moan and groan about the the the, the uh, current state of cyberspace and <laughs> what China's doing or whoever, like that's something that we don't necessarily need to talk about outside the family because it makes it people who don't understand the things we see every day. Um, when you have to turn around and work with them, like say you're an AppSec and you're moaning and groaning about the state of, of application security, when you want to turn around and partner with a member of the development team to try and get, you know, some fixes into a sprint, like that's, that's, you know, is that person um, going to want to work with you or just see you as negative Nelly? So um, I think that's the, I think that's, that's part of it too, is there's a time and place for that kind of language. And maybe it's just in the family and not to the rest of the business or to, to our, to our, our, you know, in our personal lives, not with our real families. Um, Cause it is a turnoff, even the word cyber. We've talked about that with CISA. We've had that conversation where they're, they think even though, you know, there's some recognition that even saying cyber as you know cybersecurity as opposed to just security can be off-putting to some people so speaking of taking a more fun approach to cybersecurity training you played a significant role in creating cubicle uh, with a k which is a cybersecurity based comedy series yep. can you talk a little bit about that and your role in creating it yeah, so um, that's at cubicleseries.com or cubicle. Um, <laughs> if you want to put on a fake foreign accent of some kind, um, something that sounds sinister and related to cybersecurity. Um, yeah, funnily enough, that would be in Nova Force Library if things weren't different. So <laughs> during uh, COVID, we wanted to shoot a live action series, and I had this idea for a, for I'd had, I'd gotten it years, years ago of like, you're watching the mythic quest or the office or parks and rec, any of those shows that are based in an office situation, except the office that is the office of the bad guys. Um, because it's such a, even though it's comedy, it's a reflection of reality. They are that organized, right? It's organized crime. So they do have departments and they do have customer service, you know, that'll help you make your ransomware payment and all this stuff. So, um, it's all completely based on reality. And I think, that was a light bulb moment for me when I was first in security that this isn't, you know, just one person trying to guess my password or, you know, that we're up against technology. We're up against organized crime. It's really, really sophisticated. 
And when that light bulb went off in my head, when I first joined the security team and realized, I'm like, oh boy, this is really different than what we all assume. So um, I was kind of hoping like maybe that would be a light bulb moment for other people if they had that realization that this is somebody else's job to do this, to social engineer you and uh, steal from you. So I had the concept back then uh, when I was at Media Pro, but we couldn't shoot it because um, it would have been too hard with the COVID restrictions. So too many characters, too many costume changes, too complex a set. And the restrictions during COVID just made things, you know, stuff like that really difficult. So we ended up shooting something else, which is in your library um, called user friendly uh, that just had like a, a plain white background. It was just shot in this plain white set and it's kind of a Tron thing where you're kind of inside the computer. Um, that was just a lot simpler to shoot with the restrictions. And we found a soundstage in Portland where the entire side of the building opened up. So you could have all this fresh air and you had to have a nurse on set and all these things. So, um, so we had somebody approach us. We had a large corporation of a company we all know that approached us two years ago now, I guess, and said, we want somebody who can do something really, really edgy and really push the envelope to get people's attention to cybersecurity, but we don't want anybody to know this is us. Like, this is an anonymous donation. And the first thing out of my mouth was, I got just the idea for you. (laughs) Because I knew from previous experience doing edgy security awareness campaigns that some of the attention can be negative. Some of the attention can be people saying, I don't think this, you know, is politically correct. I mean, because in cubicle, we're taking straight aim at North Korea, China, Russia, and Iran. And it's, you know, the timing was also good because it's, it's, it's not necessarily um, in poor taste to poke fun at Russia these days since the invasion of the Ukraine. <laughs> so the political climate has changed. It's a little more socially acceptable to do that. And, um, I, I've been really, really surprised that we haven't gotten any sort of negative feedback on Cubicle. One of the things we did was put a humor date on it. So you know how if you go to an alcohol website, you have to put in your birth date or you know, <laughs> to you know swear in your heart that you're 21 years old. So we yes. decided, like, if you're offended by this kind of satire, because it's all just it's satire, then um, maybe you shouldn't watch one of these videos. <laughs> so there's actually, when you first land on CubicleSeries.com, there's a, there's a gate there to say, like, warning humor ahead and if this isn't your brand of humor then you know then don't engage with the content um but we haven't seen a single person that said like you know i don't think we should make fun of russian cyber criminals so that's that's been a good thing yeah that's the that's the best weapon against that sort of thing right is humor and satire yeah yeah seven and, uh wow. we're up to seven and a half million views yeah and this is um the really crackerjack advertising team who's been um placing ads and retargeting and all that good stuff. We are trying to attract people who don't care. So um, if you have people in your family who are sick of hearing about cybersecurity from you or just don't care about it at all, um, then this is the content for them. Um, this is, this is uh, entertainment first. It's, it's like, it's a big dose of sugar along with the medicine um, just to get people's attention. This is really top of funnel. This isn't, to show you how to, you know, to instruct you on how to tell if, you know, something is fishy or not. This is really just to get your attention on the topic. Um, And it's aimed at the general, you know, the retail consumer, the general public. Lisa, do you think that the cubicle team is ever going to discuss the OBEHAVE report? 
I think the O Behave Report is their Bible. Um, <laughs> or pro, or maybe it's Dr. Cialdini's Principles of Persuasion, right? Because that's really what social engineering is. Um, actually, Dr. Cialdini told me once that he was set up to go give a talk in Russia and the FBI or somebody reached out to him and said, please don't do that. And he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so there's proof. Um, they were just looking that's to good. That's, that's their good. social That's removing the word security. Yeah, that's removing the word cyber yeah. from security and just keeping security front of my front of mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I think I think one of the things we were trying to get at in Obehave, and we'll do that again this year. We do it every year as long as we have um, funding, knock on wood, um, is how people feel about cybersecurity. Like your emotions, you know, if you believe a behavioral science model – if you've worked in marketing or advertising, you know that that we often lead with our emotions and emotions determine our motivation, whether or not we actually do something. Um, we can make decisions that are emotional in nature, even while trying to be as analytical as we possibly can be. Um, I think Perry and I gave a talk years ago where the point was like, you're a lot more... Um, we're not all Dr. Spock in our heads. We think we're Spock, but we're, <laughs> we're not Spock. We're just not hundred percent rational all the time. God forbid, like that, what a boring world we'd be in if we were. So, um, so we're trying to get at those feelings of like intimidation and um, frustration. And is this a priority for you? And uh, do you worry about it? Do you worry about being uh, targeted by cyber criminals, things like that. And, um, and so cubicle really, you know, it, Obehave helped us inform um, the direction we wanted to go. Like it was just further reinforcement that we needed to use. We needed something lighthearted and, and that humor is a, is would be the, a better way to go than, um, than more FUD, you know, fear, uncertainty and doubt. I have to say, I really appreciate it. Like even just glancing through it, as I do with any white paper that I look through, um, I'm excited to read through it. I'm not dreading it. You know, I, I love reading through because Thank it's you. not, yeah, it's not FUD. <laughs> yeah. We put a lot of work into that. We, um, we actually use the Verizon DBIR, um, the Verizon data, what is it? Data breach investigations report as our, as our model. Like we kind of said, because it's got such a readable tone to it and the call outs are just right. And you don't, you don't feel like, Oh, this is going to take me an hour. You know, you can, you can skim it and pull out some really good stuff and then go back and dig in when later when you have time. And I think that's something people in training awareness need to remember. Nobody's reading. We are all skimming all of us. Just admit it. So, um, so you've got to communicate in a way where like your main point comes across at just a glance because you really don't get more than a glance from most people. Um, so that they do such a great job with that report. Um, the folks at Verizon that we tried to, um, we tried to emulate a little bit of that, uh, in, in Obehave and the, the team does a really good job on that. It was, um, I read it on an airplane ride recently and it was like perfect for that, right? Because it was, you know, you kind of being interrupted by things here or there. It's sort of an uncomfortable environment to be on an airplane. It was like a great way to get through it. I made some notes, but the, um, the thing that I, that I particularly like about it is there is a lot of information out there about workplace mm-hmm. and there's some information out there about more generic non-workplace training. And now the current version of the report does have both. 
And when yep. you're reporting on the training aspects, you're talking about, okay, libraries, right? Because we think about delivering workplace training, fine to protect work, but like libraries are really important here because that's how a lot of people get training on everything, period, right? Um, right. One of the one of the questions that, that popped up that I did want to ask about is it comes up a lot in incident response preparation when folks are doing pen tests and they do uh, or, or they're doing phishing testing. What do you think about the naming and the shaming concept of people who fail, right? If you, if you fail a pen test three times, your name gets sent around the department or something like that. I have, you know, I don't want to, I have a view on that, but I'd love to hear your view on, on, you know, what you think the data shows about the naming and shaming of folks who aren't doing well with, with this. I mean, you might win the battle, but lose the war. You might cause a person to change their behavior. Um, You might cause one individual to stop clicking on fish who's habitually clicking, but you're going to lose the war of, 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 you know, um, the PR war, if you will, for the security team in your organization. Um, because it, so the way I used to look at it when I was running a phishing program was, um, who's, we like to say we own human risk, but the reality is, is, is the humans that we're dealing with training and, and, you know, trying to help them improve, um, they work for somebody else. They report to somebody else. Yeah. And so, if there's a risk we're pointing out there, if there's a particular person that's, that's really risky, that's got, you know, is clicking on too many fish or, or um, has other policy violations or what have you, um, it's our job to inform. It's our job to escalate, um, to loop in their manager, to maybe loop in HR, whatever escalation path you have. But um, if, if, if the boss says like, this is my best salesperson, <laughs> we're not going to get yeah. rid of this person then yeah. that person has to accept the risk. It's People are, at the end of the day, the business risk. We're there to ch- help manage and shine a light on human risk, but we're not there to take responsibility for every person's action. Like, you don't want that risk, right? Who would want that? Um, that's their boss's risk to accept, right? If you've done everything yeah. you can from a cultural pers- perspective, education perspective, and a technical perspective to try and protect um, the other thing I'll say is that I think when we get too deep into the escalation process as security professionals, we're out of our swim lane because that's HR. Well, our okay. job is not to fire people. Um, we, I, I, this is a little bit edgy, but I'll say it anyway. Um, my first boss in cybersecurity used to say as an example of what swim lane we should be in, um, the security team doesn't care if you serve porn. We only care if you get a malware infection while you're doing it. It's HR that cares if you serve porn, right? So we, I think we gotta like draw our lines and just know, you know, the role that, that we play and who, who security team should never be accepting risk. It should be the business that accepts risk. So I think we have to be careful about the, the new, the new language around, um, around human risk for that for that reason i'm a big believer in escalation plans i i think you know would you do that to somebody on your team like if you're a manager if you're a leader would you publicly shame them about something you're trying to coach them on in front of the whole team or would you take them out behind the woodshed and do it in private do it in a one-on-one right yeah like you 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 you'd never do that um it would be lousy leadership. So I, I just don't like punitive actions like that. Cause I think it hurts your ability, your 
as a security team, you're constantly trying to influence the business. And I think that hurts your ability to influence. That's a really good point about, you know, with the manager in anything other than a phishing test failure, would yep. the manager publicly humiliate someone on their team to make a point? No, they would. Yeah, know, they'd never do that. Praise publicly, um, criticize privately. Exactly. Is what managers have been doing supposedly for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Effectively. Um, one of the other findings of the survey that kind of jumped out is that the mistrust or distrust that people have for password managers. Yeah. Um, the number of people that write, that have password notebooks. That's, that's the thing that guts me the most every year. Yeah. Um, what, 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 like, where does it, I mean, do you think there's, I mean, where does it come from? Do you think there's a way to change it to get people to, to trust? Yeah. So I think it comes from the, it comes to the press. It comes from all the yellow journalism around. Uh, if you don't remember that term, go back to high school American yeah. history. <laughs> it comes from. Um, <laughs> it comes from all the, all the clickbait around security and the and the um, headlines that are all very attention getting. So I think LastPass hit everybody's radar, and that put them off of all those solutions completely. You guys have a no before has a great presentation um, on. Uh, more and less fishable MFA, right? That's mm-hmm. a great conversation for us to have in the family. When we start to, when it makes headlines, when somebody gets um, fished through MFA, people are like, oh, I'm not using MFA. That's pointless. That doesn't protect you, right? So so we have to remember that the general audience doesn't differentiate. And so you hear something scary, you react to it. And um, so I think it was, I think it was, honestly, I think it was the last pass breach that, uh yeah just is the gift that keeps on giving. And so um, it's made the headline a couple of times, the headlines a couple of times. And I think that put people off of those solutions in general, which is a shame. I had, said, I had personally set LastPass up like a week before that event occurred <laughs> and I was not subject to it, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to do something else. It was just, a, yeah. but it's funny yeah. how it, you're like, you know, the, I've seen it described elsewhere as the McDonald's effect, where if there's a rumor in the industry, you know, even if something occurs at like Burger King or Wendy's, it always goes back to the market leader. McDonald's takes the hit. Exactly. Like people just think, but it was funny. It was just like when that password, you know, when the when that occurred, right? The last pass occurred. I think everyone just thought, well, the whole thing, a pox on all your houses, right? right and everybody exactly. takes it. But there's no better. That's the solution, right? Um, that that seems to be it. I guess my last pass um, password was so complicated that I had to write that down, and then I <laughs> took a pause and I. <laughs> <laughs> committed to memory and did get rid of it. I did. I, did, I was, as I was doing it, I was like, wait a minute. I know better. Than this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we give that, we give that, we give a, a presentation during the course of the year, but mainly in October that uses audience polling to ask employees of an organization, the same questions that we ask in the O behave a subset of them. And so through whatever meeting app we're using, we have an audience poll, we see how everybody voted. Then the next slide is how the general public, what they said about that same question. And it got better. The question about how do you keep track of all your passwords? Um, Last year, vast majority of the organizations I spoke to, um, including three letter agencies in Washington, D.C., all said they keep a password notebook. And um, it was just kind of disheartening. So this year, just anecdotally, I can tell you that um, of the organizations that I spoke to, there were, there's a lot more password manager use going on out there and um, less writing it down. So that's good. I hope that trend continues. 
if you write it down in a book and then put the book inside a safe and then have a combination <laughs> lock on the safe, then you write down the lock, the combination lock number, and you put that in a separate thing and you have a key to it. I mean, it's like at some point, I guess we just have to memorize things. I realized this year that what I used to say when I would give that talk, that that was the answer that scared me the most. But the answer that scares me the most, I think now is people who say, well, I have a password protected spreadsheet on my laptop. And I'm like, whoa, (laughs) that's worse than writing them down because you get a malware infection on that machine. Then they just have to crack that one password and then they got everything. So I think that's my new favorite worst answer. Outlook notes. Outlook notes is a bad one. Yeah. That's yeah. You're like, it couldn't be more. Couldn't be more out there. Um, well, <laughs> what um, one of the other things is the the global aspect of it. And this mm-hmm. year's survey went even more global than last year's. Right. How does having that global data help in terms of what you're trying to figure out? So I think one of the things that it brought home to me was that we're the most attacked country in the world. Um, that is really, really evident when you like factually, I know that to be true, but then you look at the report and what, the citizens of different countries say, and it's, and it's pretty obvious. Um, the other thing that uh, I realized is that data privacy laws can help, that we always talk about like this intersection of privacy and security. I lived in Germany for 13 years. The Germans were the first ones after the Second World War to have really um, strict data privacy laws because there'd been such a misuse of data during the Second World War um, of, of individuals' data. Wow. So... I didn't get as many, you know, you don't get robo-dialer calls. You don't get junk mail in the mail. You don't get a lot of spam. Like your data just isn't out there. There aren't massive databases that can, can be breached. And so, um, so I saw that that was the other thing brought home to me is looking at the data from Germany that, um, that that actually has a, an unintended good, you know, benefit, I think on the security side. Um, next year, we're going to include India. Um, we're hoping to have funding for that because I think so many multinationals have set, you know, American-based multinationals have set up large operations in India. They've sent a lot of uh, critical operations over there. Um, when I was running a phishing program, my uh, biggest problem was accounts payable team in India, not where you want to have a lot of clickers. Right? <laughs> accounts <laughs> So I think um, for a lot of organizations, you, you stand up an office there and you, you, you spend a lot of time moving whatever operation it is you're, you're moving over there and you hire some local security talent and you get back on the plane and you cross your fingers and it's all going to be okay. Because you don't really have like your finger on the pulse, you know, and you're not really um, familiar enough with the culture to understand the security culture of the, of the organization. So um I've done a little bit of outreach to the Indian government to see if they want to sponsor it, you know, like the equivalent of CISA, um, or if there's an organization that wants to sponsor it. I, re- I really want to include India because I think that would be really valuable. I mean, I was responsible for training and awareness of the of that, um, offices we had there, but I'd never been there, didn't know anybody, you know, there outside of the security team. Um, so I think that would be really illuminating for, for those of us who are trying to run a global program, um, having, adding, um, Southeast Asia to the mix because we currently don't have any Asian countries in the, um, well, we have Asia Pacific, we have New Zealand, and we're going to add Australia as well. Oh, nice. Lisa, I have to ask what, what brought you to Germany? I was an exchange student there in high school and just really fell in love with it and decided those are my people and I wanted to live there as an, uh, as an adult and I convinced Ford Motor Company to make that part of my career path. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. But my brother-in-law lived in Germany for a little while and he said that one of the big differences there was that people don't eat in their cars. And that, oh no, heck no. You wouldn't do that. that no. I, I did, it's such a beautiful thing, but yeah. Well, How are you going to eat French fries and drive a hundred miles an hour at the same time? Like that's just a really bad idea. It might even be illegal now that I think about it. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. But I think of it every time I have a snack in my car, I should just stop the car, eat it outside, throw it away, get back into the car. Instead, yeah. here I am with French fries from months ago, stuck in between the center console. And the exactly. Side. Yeah. On the other I hand, it's snacks for later. So uh, we're going to take a know. short break now, Lisa. And when we return, we'll have our lifestyle polygraph. So everyone, oh please stay with us. You're listening to the No Password Required podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff. Welcome back. As many of you know, the Lifestyle Polygraph is a test used by the federal government to determine if a person is worthy of learning some of our nation's most important secrets. Here, we use this technique for slightly lower stakes to determine whether our guest can join our fantasy cybersecurity squad. Lisa, are you ready for the Lifestyle Polygraph? Yes, I am. Awesome. All right, first question. What's been more significant in your career? Curiosity or creativity? I think for me personally, it's been creativity. But if you ask me what I look for in people that I hire, it's curiosity, um, mm. especially in cybersecurity. I think it's a when, when we talk to hiring managers in our, uh, our career fairs at HBCUs, that there that comes up at every single school we visit. Every recruiter would tell you they're looking for people who are curious. And I think it's a prerequisite to learning. If you're not interested, if you're not curious about how things work, um, then I'm not sure how you learn things. <laughs> I think that's that's your motivation for for learning, for wanting to um, for wanting to understand. I think it's really important for your interaction with the business as well. If you're not curious about, you know, I'll talk to security people. I've talked to security folks over the years who who basically have a you know a very rudimentary knowledge of what what their business does, like how they earn money. Um, yeah. And that's a big disconnect. So I think you've got to be curious about things that are outside of your realm because um, when you have to interact with folks that are outside of the security world, it's really important to understand where they're coming from. And if you're not curious, then I'm not sure how you do that. But for me personally, I think, um, I think having creativity in the business world and not working, you know, for example, when I was in college, I probably would have told you I wanted to work in an ad agency. And my career just didn't go that direction. I'm thankful for that now because um, they probably would have ground me to dust 67 hours a week right out of college. Well, I mean, Ford yeah. did a good job of that too. But um, I think that uh, creativity in the business world is, is just something we need more of because we have a lot of problems and issues and we're always looking for a way to solve, you know, a way to solve complex problems. And, and it takes a dose of creativity to, to do that, I think. Um, and I'm really, really glad that I landed in security um, with this creativity because it lets me do things like cubicle. It lets me do things that um, we're trying to get a message across to people, many of whom don't want to hear it. <laughs> so how, <laughs> how do we do that? Um, how do we break through all the other content that's hitting people all day long from all sources in their lives, not just stuff coming at them from work. And um, 
and trying to get people's attention, you know, trying to get share of mind is like something I really enjoy. So yeah, I'd say it's gone pretty well so far. I'm happy. That's like the creativity concept insecurity is particularly important. I mean, there's so many checklists out there that tell us, oh, here's what we're supposed to do if X happens. This is why our response. So you can become so beholden to checklists that, you know, a checklist is only based on prior experience. So right. if you are presented with something novel, yeah. the checklist is, isn't going to help you that much. You're right. You're in a pickle. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I think, too, being in – um, an industry like cybersecurity, it also makes sense that you would desire curiosity in the people you are hiring more often than not. Because right. if you're not curious, then your knowledge is only as good as today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it's moving so fast. Yeah. Yeah. And understanding how, you know, being curious about how that malware works or being curious mm-hmm. about who's behind a specific attack. I mean, those are things that all demand curiosity. Yeah. All right. Second question. Which cubicle crew member <laughs> would you be willing to add to your team? So I think it would be. At first, I thought Ri because she's so this is the North Korean character because she's um, regimented and driven, and she's very Type A. And um, but then I realized like that only goes so far. So I think it would be there's an episode where Vig and um, Emma Tree are having a conversation about um, somebody's dating somebody in real life, and they, uh, you know, these are guys that are also perpetrate romance scams. And so they're really uh, worried that, like, if this person, so I think it's Vig who's dating somebody, and he can't tell her what he really does for a living. Um, he's he's and he's having this conversation with the the character that that works in the romance scam department. So um, I think it's him because he has a conscience because he's actually got a, a conflict of conscience there. Like, what do I do? Like, I I'm having this relationship. And at what point am I going to say, like, you know, <laughs> this is what I do for a living. And how do I do that? And like, boy, maybe what I do is kind of terrible is kind of like his thought process, right? If he's afraid to tell her, he's obviously um, knows that he has an unpalatable profession. So um, I think it's I think it's him because he's got a sense of conscience. I, one of the most toxic things you can have on a team is narcissism, is somebody mm-hmm. who's who's. Um, yeah, I just didn't learn some of those key lessons in kindergarten about playing nicely with others. So, um, so it wouldn't be any of the characters that display any narcissism. It would probably be somebody with a conscience, somebody who's a, a mensch. Yeah, Lisa, that's one of the, that's such a great um, setup, though the the romance scammer who falls in love and yeah. you're like kids. <laughs> like, how do I know that it's not just my workplace skills? Yeah, there you go. Right. I'm I'm just really good at this. So, yeah. It's like the divorce lawyer getting divorced. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Our our wheels are already spinning on, like, further episodes because I think we've just scratched the surface on the character development. And, you know, the real bad guys write new plots for us every day. So I I think um, I'm hopeful that someday we can do more. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I, I feel like 
that's also a pretty common path for certain types of criminal hackers who get caught and then become reformed for the good guys. There's a conscience in there. Yeah. 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 All right. Number three. In high school, you worked on an underground student-led newspaper. Please tell us everything you can remember because it sounds so amazing. I should have never let that tidbit out in the press. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of those where the words come out and you just want to pull them back in. So I went to a Lutheran high school. Uh, There were only 124 in my graduating class. Uh, I think there were maybe, the school was growing, so there were maybe like 600 students or something in the whole school or 500. But at any rate, it was a small school in suburban Detroit. And, um, you know, being a parochial school, uh, everybody was kind of rowing in the same direction. And it was really clear what was right and what was wrong. And, and um, you know, I, I guess I'd, maybe that's where my love of satire was born, because like opposing viewpoints weren't always valued, um, especially if they were a little snarky. So um, so we decided, it, I don't know if I started it. There was a guy that used to sit next to me in Old Testament class who would... Um, he had a cigar box full of crayons and he had a coloring book and he, <laughs> he's probably like a brain surgeon now. I think he was just like incredibly <laughs> bored. Um, cause a lot of us had been to, uh, parochial, uh, K 12. And so like, Oh boy, another class on the old Testament. We've been doing this our whole lives. Right. So, um, so he, I think he was just finding another way to entertain himself. I know he was one of the people that, that worked on it. And then another friend of mine who was um, like the class clown, he was just a, a crazy, his sense of humor was off the charts. Um, and he went on to work in sales, <laughs> which is not, not unusual. And so I think yeah. we just like we had, I think we wrote some, it was really like satire about some of the teachers and like things that, you know, we're certainly not going to make the legit school newspaper. That was not going to happen. Um it was an, a chance for us to exercise our funny bones, I think, and to, to and to prod at, you know, I think I look at uh, the high school where my kids went to went to school. Um, the last of them graduated six years ago, but it was okay to kind of poke fun at some of the teachers and to do some satirical things and like maybe somebody would dress up for a teacher for Halloween or something, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the mid eighties in a parochial school, that was not okay. So we had to find an outlet for that creative energy. And that was it. It didn't last very long. It was like, wouldn't this be fun? But then once it looked like something you would have to do, like a beast, you'd have to feed regularly. Like we didn't want to do work. We just, (laughs) it was a limited run, a limited run. Very. It's a good thing that the internet didn't exist in in the form it does today, because (laughs) if we had to put that thing online, it would still be there somewhere. Absolutely. And I probably would be unemployed because of it or something. I don't know. I mean, we didn't (laughs) say, it wasn't anything, I didn't think we cursed in there, right? It was the 80s. Like, we were pretty clean-cut kids. But but yeah, I think we just kind of poked fun at the teachers and the administration. That's awesome. I love it. All right, number four. The two projects that we talked to you about both have a unique comedic element. We feel that makes you a bit of an expert in this area. So as such, what's your Mount Rushmore of comedy movies? Monty Python, Holy Grail, without a doubt. Like that's just classic. Um, I think by the time my oldest daughter was like 12, she had the whole, she could recite the entire script. (laughs) We had already exposed her to it at an early age. 
um that's a that's that's that was in there's just that's it that's the one yeah yeah I love that answer. I have to agree. I've watched so much Monty Python. I frequently make references and jokes that people don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Then they're missing out. They're missing out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I refuse to stop. It's their fault for not knowing. (laughs) Yes. I feel like between that, the members of that troop, they probably have more than one underground student newspapers themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Like a pick. <laughs> Absolutely. What they're doing. All right. Last question. If you were given the power to deliver a keynote to any audience on any topic, what audience and topic would you choose? Oh my gosh. Um, if it was storytelling, I'd probably tell the story of how my husband and I came to be married because it's pretty. Uh, we're we had an eighteen-year break. We we were high school sweethearts who broke up in college, and then eighteen years later went to her high school reunion and 18 months after that we were married um wow that's like i can make people cry with that story there's a lot of ups and downs to the whole path like oh my gosh um other than that like when i think about sort of in the business world um i think it would be so the keynote that jenny brinkley from amazon and i delivered last year or wasn't a keynote just a session that we delivered at rsa um was about using humor and being more creative in your training and awareness program. And I think it's not, it's not so much like, is there something I'd want to tell everybody that I haven't said before, you know, a topic I haven't spoken on before. I wish I could reach out and help every single one of those people who had a takeaway actually implement it Mm. Um, to actually see not everybody has the gift of humor, not everybody. So then you have to hire it or you have to outsource it, right? You have to find the right resources. Um, And I hate the thought of somebody coming out of a session like that, feeling um, inspired and then having a conversation with a a CISO or their boss or whoever that just completely shuts it down. Like Mm -hmm. I sometimes you got to push the envelope, right. And, and find who, who your allies are in the organization. And um, if you know, you're going to get headwinds from your own department or corporate comms or HR or whoever it is like finding ways to find your allies and eventually create change in an organization. It's really hard to do. And it's really challenging um, for a lot of people. Not everybody has that skill set or the, or just the gumption, the wherewithal to like plow through it. It's really hard. So I think it's one thing for me to get on stage and talk about doing this. It's another thing for people to actually go out there and do it. And I wish I had like a magic wand that I could, um, like, you know, guide people through that process so that we could make more progress faster. I think we just, we, there's too many blockers, you know, there's always blockers in life, Mm -hmm. but security folks have to deal with blockers a lot and, um, learning how to do that and being effective at it is a, is a challenge. And so it'd probably be something around, around that whole conundrum of, of how do we deal with the roadblocks that are in front of us in the business world as security professionals? I feel like that's really beautiful because it, I think it, that answer showcases the passion that you truly have for security awareness. So, yeah, um, I was ready to uh, recruit you after the Monty Python answer, but. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, thank you for I, your kind I think words. you made it. That's very nice of you. <laughs> yeah. I do get pretty excited about this stuff. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. If our listeners want to get in touch with you, see what you're working on, um, how can they do that? Uh, take a look at staysafeonline.org or we're on all the social media channels or you can reach out to us at info at staysafeonline.org. Thank you very much for having me. This was fantastic. Really fun podcast. Thank you, Lisa. Yay. Thank you. That brings us to the end of the show. But first, Kaylee, what did you learn today? I learned that Dr. Cialdini was asked not to teach his <laughs> principles of persuasion to Russia. And perhaps we're all just a tiny bit better off for that. <laughs> <laughs> I learned, uh, you know, been in, in this business for almost 20 years. And I learned today that the reason that the German, ha- the German government has a consumer first privacy culture and is set up to preference privacy is because of the abuses of the collection of information during World War II. I did not know that. Um, and it makes so much sense with what we've seen um, in Germany over, the, over that same time period. So that was a, a sort of sobering, but, but good to learn. So for the entire No Password Required team, I'm Jack Clabby. Thank you again for listening. We'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the No Password Required podcast. You can find us on social media at No Password Pod. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the No Password Required podcast. And if you know someone who might like it, please share it with them. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. And a special thank you goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, cyberflorida.org slash pod. All opinions expressed by the No Password Required podcast participants are their own and do not exclusively represent the views and opinions of Cyber Florida.